0: I am very pleased to welcome to Forward Guidance, Robert Kaplan, who uh, up until recently, up until 2021, was a voting member on the Federal Open Market Committee, uh, CEO and President of the Dallas Federal Reserve. Robert, thank you so much for for doing this. Welcome. Good to talk to you, Jack. Robert, so we're recording the morning of Monday, June 12th. In two days, we're going to learn the the results of the deliberations at the Federal Open Market Committee. Fed Chair Jay Powell is going to come out. Uh first of all the market is kind of anticipating that there will be a pause that there will be no more rate hikes. Do you judge that that is likely what's going to happen?
1: I think the market's judging uh that there'll be a pause in this meeting. Uh my, my own my own uh advice if I were at the Fed I'd be I would not act in this meeting but I would make clear that the pause is within a a tightening stance which means there might be more increases after this meeting. And I, would, I think it's very important the Fed emphasize that.
0: Got it. And do you think that's likely what's gonna happen?
1: I'm always uh, a fan of figuring out what I would do if I were there and not predicting what they will do. That's what I would do.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about what you would have done because you were you were there. And you know, Fed Chair Jay Powell, notable for having very few dissents uh, for voting members of the Federal Open Market Committee, one of the very few dissents, and one of I think your only dissent, was in September of 2020 when the Federal Reserve just put out this flexible average inflation targeting model, and you dissented to that. Uh, could you explain why you dissented to that and why and, and why that's uh, sort of relevant to what we're seeing today?
1: So the the part I had a problem with, I I don't have a problem with the Fed being a little less preemptive on inflation than it's been historically. Meaning, as you get down to very low levels of unemployment being a little bit more patient in taking action to tighten monetary policy. That part I didn't have a problem with. What I had a big problem with, which caused me to dissent, is in September of 2020, the Fed committed to leaving rates at zero until uh, the economy reached full employment uh, and it was clear that inflation was not only at 2%, but running moderately above 2%. I am not supportive of, of making current commitments to future actions. I think that, I felt strongly that was a mistake. Uh, I think that type of approach is a mistake. And I think, unfortunately, passing that guidance, even though I dissented, the rest of the committee voted for it, passing that guidance in September of 2020 Paved the way to uh, continue to buy bonds for all of 2021 at 80 billion and 40 billion a month, and into a good part of 2022, when I think it would have been much wiser for the Fed to take its foot off the accelerator uh, and uh, slow down all this monetary policy accommodation in you know sometime in 2021, and I think it would have avoided some of the challenges we're facing now.
0: And so when, in September, interest rates were at zero and forward guidance, the name of this show, is committing to keeping interest rate at a certain level, letting the market know what is going to come ahead so that forward rates can sort of kind of price that in. So is, is it fair to say that you think the Federal Reserve re- relied too much on forward guidance because it let the market know it, it sort of made a promise to the market that we're going to keep financial conditions uh, loose for a very
1: long time? In that case, yes, uh, I, I believe strongly that that was a time that the Fed should have tried to instead retain its flexibility. Uh, we were coming out of COVID. It was clear we'd been through a historically unusual period because of COVID, and when you're getting when you're in that kind of situation, the Fed should be very careful about retaining its flexibility, not being rigid and predetermined. Not committing to future actions because you know the only thing you know for sure is the world's going to change. Uh, we're coming out of COVID. We've had massive fiscal policy. And I think that was a time where the Fed should have retained its flexibility. And if it had, I think it would have stopped buying bonds sooner, would have raised rates sooner, would have slowed down. Uh, I, I liken it to In 2020, when we were in COVID, we were running 120 miles an hour to get out of the ditch. But after we got out of the ditch in some time in, say, early 2021, it would have been smart to take your foot off the accelerator and start going 55 miles an hour again. And that type of guidance commitment, I think, uh, straitjacketed the Fed from doing, I think, what should have been done.
0: And if... Going 55 is more moderate, less uh, accommodative. What is what we've been doing now? What the Federal Reserve has been doing of raising 500 basis points. Uh, is that, is that you know, going 25 miles an hour?
1: No, uh, it's not. What, so what happens, and the I, I, best analogy is to driving your car. If you drive 120 miles an hour and you keep driving 120 miles an hour, and in the distance there's an intersection with a red light, you know that eventually Unfortunately, if you don't slow down to fifty-five, uh, you're going to have to slam on the brakes. What we're what we're seeing over the last year is the Fed's had to slam on the brakes, and that and I mean slam. And so normally, what you want is more uh, smooth monetary policy, where yeah, you get down to fifty-five, so you have the option to go thirty-five, you have the option to go seventy again. But we haven't had the Fed hasn't had a choice here. It was going so fast uh, by middle to late 2022. There was no choice but to slam on the brakes. And, and this slamming has been going on for a year. And like when you're driving your car, when you slam on your brakes, there's no textbook for how to slam. There's no textbook called how to slam on the brakes. It's, it's unpredictable. Things get broken. Un- surprising things happen. And, and that's a little bit of what we're seeing.
0: And a lot of people in the banking community say the reason that banks, and particularly some regional banks, uh, and you know particularly First Republic, Silicon Valley Bank, the reason that those banks failed, we don't necessarily want to blame the Federal Reserve, but the role of interest rates from being at zero and being told by you know, Jay Powell uh, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. Okay, so we're gonna uh, you know lock in our net interest margins and buy some paper yielding two percent, and suddenly interest rates go from zero percent to five percent. You know a lot of people in the banking world uh, attribute the uh, turmoil in the in, in the banking system. To that rapid uh, uh, raise in interest rates from zero percent to five percent in you know about a year. Do you agree with that? Is that is that characterization fair? N-
1: not completely. So there there are two issues. Issue number one is, yeah, when rates were at zero and it was clear the Fed was aggressively buying bonds, uh, certain banks, not all, but certain banks decided to buy AAA uh, treasuries and AA mortgage-backed securities and create an asset liability mismatch. Normally, even in those periods, I would have advised the bank CEO, don't do that. You're you're taking a risk. Once the Fed pivoted and made clear it was in a rate-tightening cycle, there was still time to clean up those asset liability mismatches. But again, they were in a hold to maturity account. Mm -hmm. And so the way these hold to maturity accounts work, if you start selling them, you have to recognize the losses. And so I think they may have felt a little bit handcuffed. But there's a second mistake, which is from a supervision point of view, if I'd been at the Fed, I would have been strongly advocating let's hyper focus on and be dramatically more vigilant on those banks that have taken big asset liability mismatch positions. It's not a long list, uh, and I've looked at it in hindsight now. Mm-hmm. it's it, A lot of banks did not excessively make that asset liability mismatch bet, but some did, and I mean an enormous size. And when I say enormous size, enough to wipe out their entire net worth. Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, it was, it was not invisible. It was very transparent what they were doing. All you had to do was look at their, ass, their hold to maturity account. And so the second uh, issue, which I really regret didn't happen, is I wasn't at the Fed, but I regret that the Fed did not increase their vigilance on banks and encourage them a year ago to clean up these mismatches. And it would have been pretty easy to do. There wouldn't have been big losses taken, and it would have allowed those banks to survive. But for whatever reason, um, it, it, those those uh, mismatches were allowed to uh, uh, continue without supervisory regulatory intervention. And I think that's that second part's regrettable. Uh, and and I think um, obviously it's part you have to take ownership of bank management, but also this is why regulators exist, this is why supervision exists, is to take these vulnerabilities and step in. And so the unfortunate impact of that was, pre-credit cycle, pre-downturn, uh, we've lost bank capital throughout the system and we're going into what may be a severe slowdown, we don't know yet, um, with le- a lot less capital than we thought we had three or four months ago, that is really unfortunate.
0: And do you think there's an aspect of banks uh, expanded their balance sheets when interest rates were so low? So they made the time when they made all these loans was when interest rates were at zero, and now interest rates are much higher. So they could be making loans, but they're just not able to make as many loans. So their uh, sort of net interest market, they're kind of being squeezed a little bit.
1: Well, so here's the part where bond buying comes into play. Uh, what happened, the Fed kept buying 80 billion of treasuries, 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities, all through 21 and through a good part of 22, a meaningful chunk of, of that bond buying in, in indirectly wound up in bank deposits going up dramatically. So you had this massive increase in bank deposits. And so the banks had to decide what to do with all these bank deposits and their choices were to make more loans, which they did to some extent, but they also dramatically increased their hold of maturity accounts and their investment accounts. And in the extreme, that's what Silicon Valley Bank did. And that's what First Republic did. They weren't alone. Others did it too. The difference between First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank and the others, they did it in such size. Uh, that it literally, when you mark those to market, it wiped out all their net worth. The reason this issue came to light is now as the Fed is draining liquidity, it's starting to run off its balance sheet. Silicon Valley Bank started to have some deposit declines to where they needed to sell some of these hold of maturity assets to create liquidity. And when they did that, they had to recognize the losses. And then everybody woke up to the fact that, oh, my Lord, who else has this kind of mismatch? And what the, the public markets did is they did the supervisor's job for them. They said, boy, if the supervisors aren't, uh, regulatory uh, personnel aren't watching this, we're going to do their job. And they looked at every single public bank and they marked down every bank who had sizable hold of maturity accounts. And they did it for dollar for dollar. And while they were at it, they didn't stop there. They looked at banks with a high percentage of uninsured deposits. They looked for banks with high loan-to-deposit ratios, and they marked them down. And so what you saw is uh, market value of uh, of banking stocks went down dramatically to where now most public banks are trading for less than book value. Maybe first, uh, uh, J.P. Morgan is probably the only obvious bank I can think of that trades at more than book. That's a dramatic change. Six months ago, banks were... By and large, trading at one a quarter, one half times book. Now they're almost all trading less than book. And what the public market is saying is, your your equity is not worth book value, and mm-hmm. it isn't. And so uh, th- that is a real that is in the real world that's a loss of capital.
0: And banks who, who where deposits are leaving, they're raising capital either through the the discount window from the Fed, the bank term funding program, new program from the Fed. Or the uh, federal home loan bank, and those that money is costing you know high four, low five percentile. It's not costing zero.
1: And here's the problem: that's not raising capital. That's replacing deposits with their, with loans. That's not a cap. That doesn't help capital. Or what they're doing is going to the wholesale CD market and buying CDs so that they put some window dressing on their deposits. So that the the fact of the matter is. Uh, that doesn't help with capital. Uh, It just helps with liquidity. And so what the banks are are wrestling with right now is they have less capital than they'd like. They worry that there's going to be more deposit instability. They don't know. And they know we're heading into a credit cycle. So what they're doing by and large is they are shrinking their loan books uh, in order to try to fit back into the capital they do have. And the impact of that is particularly significant for small, mid-sized businesses uh, who are very reliant on banks uh, for uh, capital, for loans. Big public companies don't borrow that much from uh, commercial banks. They borrow mainly in the financial markets based on the curve. Uh, They they haven't been as meaningfully hurt. Small, mid-sized companies have been.
0: You said the curve, the sort of the yield curve is inverted, meaning that longer-dated bonds now yield less than shorter-term interest rates. And a lot of that is because the Federal Reserve raised interest rates uh, so drastically. In some uh, markets' participant views, an inverted yield curve is almost always a harbinger of a recession or something bad to come in the markets, the economy, or both. In the public statements from the Federal Reserve, particularly Fed Chair Jay Powell, he has said that he's perhaps not as worried about an inverted yield curve as someone who was, you know, on the inside. How does the Federal Reserve think about an, an inverted yield curve? Is it is it this doomsday sign that so many, uh, uh, you know, market participants think it is?
1: What what an inverted yield curve is a sign of is people think that market rates today are going to decline because the economy is going to slow. That's why the curve is inverted, and. The practical effect of an inverted yield curve is banks borrow short through deposits and they lend long through loans. An inverted yield curve means their net interest margins get squeezed Uh, and and it means they're less willing to lend. That's the reality. Uh, The reason the Fed might not be as worried as they would be otherwise is they're trying to slow the economy. So in the past, I was more concerned about an inverted yield curve because I we weren't trying to slow the economy. We were we were trying to stay out of recession. The Fed, because of this inflation problem, is actually trying to slow the economy, and that's why they may not be as alarmed as they might otherwise be.
0: Yeah. And how what is your economic uh Outlook, and, and perhaps we can go back. So, March 2020, we had a global recession, probably unlike you know any other recession worldwide. Where we're sort of a, you know, a, 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 we intentionally shut down the economy. Starting in April of 2020, how did the economy rebound, and how do you characterize sort of the, the economic growth that happened then? And yeah, and then we'll get into inflation in 2022, and then your forward outlook.
1: So, in 2020, I don't need to tell people uh, GDP declined in the month of March 30 percent, plus or minus. It then rebounded 30% in the month of April, but but for the year, uh, the economy probably we lost forget the number seven or eight percent GDP. What the fiscal authorities tried to do in 2020 is estimate the GDP gap. So, if your listeners let's say GDP is 22, 23 trillion dollars. You know, plus or minus 8% of it is a couple of trillion dollars, let's say. Uh, And so you had sizable fiscal programs that were passed uh, to get money into the hands of small business and in the hands of consumers. And the Fed basically monetized that spending by buying 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities every month. And in addition, you had these 13-3 programs Mm -hmm. in the lingo, which backstopped the bond market, muni market, other markets to try to restore market function. OK, so far, so good. I think that was appropriate actions, not perfect. And uh, what the impact of those actions were is consumer spending during 2020 actually did not decline. It, it just shifted. It shifted from services to goods, and uh, it, it helped mitigate the contraction in GDP we would otherwise have. So far, so good. The problem started then in 2021, where we weren't totally out of COVID, but we were climbing out of COVID. And you had a new raft of fiscal spending in the trillions. And the Fed kept buying mortgage-backed securities and bonds to the tune of 80 billion of treasuries and 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities all through 2021. And so, nominal GDP growth spiked in 2021 to 12%. In other words, real GDP plus inflation was 12%. The last time nominal growth in the United States was that high was probably in the 70s, which were a very high inflationary period. Uh, and so we were running at 120 miles an hour, and you had people warning the economy was overheating. And I think uh, with 12% nominal GDP growth in an economy that probably has real potential of about 2%, yeah, I'd say we were overheating. And we kept growing at about an 8 or 9% rate into 2022. All right. So finally, as I said, the Fed decided to slam on the brakes uh, and to try to slow this nominal GDP growth. Down to something. Ultimately, ideally, they'd love to have I think four or five percent nominal growth. We're still running right now at about uh, you know in the neighborhood of seven or eight percent nominal growth. It, you really can't get to inflation of even three percent if nominal growth is not down in the neighborhood of four. And why is that? Because we don't have the potential. To grow a lot faster than two percent on a real basis in the United States, and one of the reasons for that is is workforce growth is in the neighborhood of zero. So, work uh, G- real GDP growth is the sum of workforce growth plus productivity, and we know because of demographics, aging, uh, workforce growth is very sluggish. Okay, so where are we right now? The Fed has got rates of five five and a quarter. It may need to do a little bit more. The reason we're not slowing more than we are, in my opinion, is the remnants of fiscal spending are still with us. And so what do I mean by that? The American Rescue Act passed back in 2020. It's been spent by the federal government, but I can tell you it has not been spent locally. That money in the tens of billions of dollars around the country is sitting in state and local uh, bank accounts. It has to be in the lingo obligated by 2024 and spent by 25. And I can tell you every locality in the country where I talk to a mayor or a university chancellor, or you name it, has got a substantial amount of money they're about to spend for new projects uh, uh, in, in state and local governments because they have to spend it or they're going to lose it. And so uh, when you include that money, plus the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, plus the Infrastructure Act. You've got uh, a number of programs that are stimulating fiscal spending that are much like you, what you would do if you were trying to get out of a recession. These are the kind of programs you'd be doing to stimulate the economy out of a recession, and we're doing them right now. And so I think that's one of the reasons why, even though the Fed is hiked and is surprised the economy's not slowed more, I think there's an offset, which are some of the tail of these fiscal programs that is blunting uh, monetary policy and is increasing demand for goods, services, and labor, particularly in the service sector.
0: Thank you. And then the uh, uh, buying of mortgage-backed securities as a result, as well as taking interest rates to uh, you know zero, mortgage rates were three percent in some cases lower. So many, many homeowners bought homes uh, with a mortgage of 2.8 2.9% 2. or refinanced and you know that stimulative effect doesn't go away once you intre- raise interest rates to 5%. That's still there because they don't, you know that, that's a 30 year uh, fixed rate mortgage. So that's stimul- stimulative as well.
1: And I would say one other thing just on the uh, home side. You got to remember so now that the Fed is raising rates, mortgage rates have increased dramatically to 6 and a fraction 7%. So for first time home buyers Homes are, home buying is really not affordable, and so they have to rent. And so that's why we see uh, rents being hotter than you'd like otherwise. So you had this run-up in prices, and now you have this run-up in, in uh, mortgage rates, which are keeping out uh, buyers and forcing them to rent. Uh, there's an increase in multifamily supply, but that's that's one of the odd things going on in the housing market also.
0: Got it. I uh, just want to revisit. You said in March 2020, the, and you know, uh, for longer, when the Federal Reserve was doing quantitative easing, as you said, $120 billion a month, that and much more in March 2020, that the Federal Reserve sort of monetized that debt and aided the fiscal stimulus. Is that a view or a characterization that some of your colleagues at the Federal Reserve would have agreed with? Because I think the official terminology they use is, oh, we did, we did quantitative easing not to monetize the debt, but to... Uh, aid fiscal stability, excuse me, financial stability?
1: Well, there were two reasons for the spending. This is, again, in 2020. It was to restore market function, and I do think it was to uh, smooth the way for the fiscal spending that had to be done. But but more than anything, we were in a deep hole, and I think our, our view at the Fed was more specifically to try to stimulate economic activity because we were coming out of a ditch. It had the effect of helping to facilitate the fiscal spending also. Okay,
0: so that was your uh, economic characterization of the past uh, two years. Now we have inflation in, in 2022, and you know many people during the summer of 2022 calling for a recession because these rate hikes are f- fearsome and they're going to come in. I think at one point maybe the Bloomberg uh, recession probability was at 99, percent and yet here we are. Uh, you know, in middle of June 2023, and you know, the unemployment rate is still low. Yes, we've had some banking issues, but you know, bank lending is you know, it, it hasn't crashed by any means, and you know, I don't, I don't think that uh, most economists would characterize that we have had a recession. So. What is your sort of economic view going forward?
1: Economic view is that uh, fiscal policy, to some extent, is offsetting uh, the monetary tightening. Won't go on forever, but I can tell you it's going to go on for 23 and 24 because I can tell you locally what's being done with the American Rescue Act funds. And some of what I see going on with the Inflation Reduction Act funds and the Infrastructure Act funds I think that will, um, that will make it so the economy may be, may be stronger than people expect. Now, there'll be a point at which this fiscal money is going to start to dry up. I would actually love it if in D.C. there was an effort to extend the time frame for spending of the American Rescue Act money and the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act and extend it out that might also ease some of the offset to monetary policy. But, but uh, it would not uh, surprise me if the economy is stronger than people are expecting. The goods sector is weakening, but the service sector has been surprisingly strong. Um, and, and I think that trend may continue for a while longer. And the other thing that's going on is uh, there are 50 million workers in this country that make $50,000 a year or less. They've been getting wage increases, but those wage increases still haven't been enough to help them make ends meet. So they're looking for higher, more wage increases to the extent they get them. Those are going back into spending further. So we've got a bit of a wage price spiral, in my opinion, going on at the $50,000 year level uh, in this country. I think the aggregate data don't suggest it, but if you disaggregate it, I think that's also what's going on. So I'm not as confident about when there's going to be a, uh, if there's going to be a recession and when it's going to be, because I think the fiscal side of the house has been stronger than people may uh, may have factored in. And eventually that will start to dry up. And when it does, I think you'll see these rate increases bite uh, more than people think.
0: Got it. So fiscal is still providing a boost, even in 2023. What about the, the uh, banking issues? And and
1: again, I just want to emphasize, if you look at the just the government spending data, you might not say that. But you got to remember, what people are not looking at is, even though it's been spent by the federal government, that doesn't mean it's been spent in the economy. A lot of the American Rescue Act money, for example, has not been. But it's going to be. And it's going to be particularly in 23 and 24 and that's the part I think people may be missing
0: and there's a deadline by which the local governments have to spend it or it's kind of use it or lose it and you said you would want to extend that so they don't have to spend it you know over the next uh, short
1: term I, I would I I think it would be wise and I think local governments I've talked to mayors, other local officials would welcome it because right now they're scrambling and they're very aware they have to in the word in their words, obligate the money and then i think it has to be formally out the door and spent by them in 25 and they're scrambling right now to do exactly that but again all that money increases demand for goods services and labor
0: got it uh thank you i I, robert i think i heard you say that the banking issues it's it's more in the first or second inning rather than the the seventh inning how concerned are you about uh the the banking system, uh, you know, as we're recording on, you know, uh,
1: uh, Monday, June 12th. So a lot of people feel because there's not big splashly headlines that the bank situation is, is well under control and it's in good shape. That, that it, that really is not quite the case. I would, I would call the phase we're in now for lack of a better term, a dull headache. Uh, the asset liability mismatch has happened. Bank stocks have been marked down. Uh, market value bank capital is lower than we thought. Uh, we've had a repricing of deposits, 200 basis points plus higher. Uh, and there's a worry as the Fed continues to draw down liquidity, its balance sheet, you, and, the, and, the, and the federal government tries to refill the Treasury General account, you know, issue more Treasury bonds, you're going to see more bank deposit pressure. So what the banks are doing right now <laughs> is it's not, it's not a crisis, what they're doing is limiting their lending because they're very aware that they could have more deposit instability, they may have a little less capital than they thought they had, and uh, they're aware we're, we may be heading into a credit cycle if and when the economy has a more severe slowing. And so w- what, the, what what's going on right now, I call it a dull headache. It means small mid-sized banks are being very careful about making loans to small mid-sized business, Uh, and to real estate projects, and small, mid-sized businesses are finding it harder to borrow. And to the extent they borrow, they may have to be going to alternative sources where the rate is much more like 10% or above, not uh, based on, um, on the Fed funds rate. And so that's what's going on right now, and you're seeing a tightening. And in fairness, the Fed wants to see a tightening, in the economy. The thing I don't like about this tightening is it's disproportionately affecting small, mid-sized businesses. It's not hurting big businesses as much. And so it it puts small, mid-sized businesses at a much bigger disadvantage. And reason I worry about that is when, and if we do have a severe downturn or a slowing in the economy, we need those small, mid-sized businesses to help us power out of that downturn. And I think we may be doing de- some damage right now to that sector.
0: Thank you. Have you been surprised by I think the, te- the technical term is deposit beta, though the rate at which some regional banks are having to increase their how much they pay on deposits in order to keep de- deposits there. You know, the last rate hike cycle, which I think I think you joined in 2015, the very beginning of the the last Fed rate rate cycle, you know, interest rates went up slowly to you know, a little over two percent, and banks could kind of get away with not paying that much on deposits. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was a different environment, people were less aware of this, but there really is a lot of, I mean, people are calling it a bank walk, uh, either moving money from regional banks as as deposits into the large money center banks at Bank of America, JP Morgan, or into money market funds, which now invest in uh, the Fed's reverse repo facility. Is this something that you think, you know, uh, is the deposit beta in this aspect, is it's greater than you thought? And do you think it is greater than the Federal Reserve and perhaps you know Jay Powell uh, um, had been expecting?
1: So let me talk first about why this is happening now might, have, might not have happened in the past. First of all, people got scared in March that the uninsured deposit they had at their local bank, they got scared that maybe it wasn't as safe as they thought. We didn't have that issue three or four or five, six years ago. Uh, because the banking system was perceived as much better capitalized. They started to get worried, maybe my bank is not as well capitalized. So that created some flight. Second, while they were looking at it, they were starting to ask themselves the question, why am I getting such a low rate at my bank? And yes, today, we have much more uh, widespread options in terms of treasury-related money market funds. And so you've got a a risk-free option, essentially risk-free option in a treasury money market fund. So why am I accepting a discount at a bank? So the the answer is, if I'm a saver, I don't think there's a good answer. And if I'm a business, yeah, the reason I, I accept below market rate is because it's a transaction account. I don't keep that much in it, but I do transactions. But even a lot of treasurers decided it wasn't safe to keep that transaction account at their local bank. Or at a small bank. So that's why all this has happened. Am I surprised? Uh, honestly, three or four years ago, I, I, I was wondering why it hadn't happened sooner. Unfortunately, what happened in March was the trigger that kind of created a tipping point. And, and I'm not sure we're ever going to go back to the way it was. I think people have woken up to the fact that they don't need to ex- accept below market rates. Uh, And so, unfortunately, this is a fact of life for banks now, particularly small, mid-sized banks. And it makes the profitability outlook for those businesses, uh, for those banks, not as attractive as it was.
0: So it definitely um, compresses their net interest margin, the profitability. What you're referring to? What about um, their potential, you know, solvency? I mean, we did have large banks fail, as Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, First Republic. Is the risk of more banks failing uh, greater now because of the, of these issues that that we're talking about? And is that something that the Federal Reserve must contend with? Oh, you're going to have a you know a handful of small regional bank failures. That that risk has increased. But guess what? We're not going to just lower interest rates to zero just to bail out a you know a few you know, small banks
1: the banking system is not as well capitalized as the fed thought it was three or four months ago or as the public thought it was and the reason is you had this accounting fiction hiding in plain sight which is these hold the maturity counts were marked at par even though they were worth 80 or 85 and uh once we woke up to that fiction um and we realized that the regulators and bank supervisors tolerated that fiction. I think the perception is the banking system has, and the reality is the banking system has less capital than we would have thought. So what's the issue? I, I, at the moment, it's not a viability issue. It, it may be that the, the, the business is not as attractive as it was. What What the issue is is how severe the credit cycle is gonna be. If you had a very severe credit cycle, You might have some banks that have less capital than you'd otherwise like have even less capital because of uh, the performance of their loan book. And that's what people are bracing for. And that's why you've seen some, quote unquote, business banks that have high exposure to CNI loans and commercial real estate loans and have a lot of uninsured deposits. You've seen those bank stocks get marked down more because people are bracing for that uh, possibility. So uh, the, Fed, the Fed needs to be aware of it. But unfortunately, I would say in the, I learned that growing up, that horse has left the barn. So in other words, y- you can't go back and easily fix that. Uh, you can't say to all those banks now raise more capital because they can't easily raise capital. Right. You can say it to a big bank, but not to a small mid-sized bank. So we're gonna have to sort of uh, work our way through this and that's probably why Janet Yellen said some number of weeks ago, we may see more bank mergers than we would have otherwise. The, o- the only thing you can do, you can either weather through it uh, or you can force some of these small midsize banks to merge. They don't they don't want to do that. And certainly small mid-sized banks don't want that. But I'm sure the Fed is going to be very vigilant watching that.
0: Right. And uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen worked with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, as well as the Federal Reserve, to issue that uh, statement on Sunday, two days after the, the fall of SEB, to uh, announce that all uninsured deposits for Silicon Valley Bank would be made whole, and they announced the uh, bank term funding program.
1: And that, that term funding program helped with liquidity. It didn't help with the idea that these banks have less capital. And I think in the minds of depositors, and I talked to lots of companies, treasurers, CEOs, they think their bank deposit is safe, but they're not sure. Uh, Because I think Janet Yellen went on to say in further statements that we will ensure any deposit in a bank that's thought to be systemically important. Uh, I think it left it a little ambiguity and, and that ambiguity is in the minds of particularly uh, company treasurers and CEOs.
0: Do you think we'll continue to see an exodus of uh, deposits from the regional banking system to be large money center banks?
1: It's a risk, but I think a, a lot of that is going to depend on severity of the credit cycle. Mm-hmm. If you have a very severe credit cycle, if we have a more severe downturn, which I don't know that we will, I would guess that will cause depositors to rethink again whether they're comfortable with where they have their uh, deposit account. If you don't have a severe credit cycle, it might uh, mitigate that.
0: I don't know if this is uh, alarming or reassuring, but all of these issues we've had with the banking system – have occurred before the credit cycle has really started. The insolvency, you know, have not really started. I mean, so many banks report, uh, you know, a charge-off rate or a you know, provision for for loan losses of very, very, very low low amounts. What do you think about this coming credit cycle? And do you think that the the risks in in uh, commercial real estate are, you know, is it are they already priced in, or could it be worse than some
1: people even think? I mean, I don't know, but if I had to guess, I would guess you're going to see bank earnings come under some pressure in the next few quarters. And I think you'd see you'll see well-managed banks actually increase their deposit their um, loan reserves to uh, to prepare for the credit cycle. I don't know that, but hmm. that would be my guess. Um, you've already started to see it to some extent, uh, but but I think people may be surprised. Uh, although we'll have to see that uh, that bank earnings are going to be under more pressure. Because what what do you what goes with deposit rates going up over 200 basis points, and restricting your loan growth and your loan book, is it tends to put pressure on earnings, and so, I I think I will be and I'm sure others will be watching that closely,
0: particularly for Dallas your your region, a lot of uh, people reporting the beige book reported that a lot of banks were tightening uh, credit. Have you continued to see that? Uh, in, in Dallas that you know, a lot of banks are just, just tightening on credit. And again, whether or not those loans go bad or, or not, the very fact that banks are tightening credit uh, is somewhat contractionary for the economy, right?
1: Yeah, I, I'm seeing it nationwide in banks I talk to. The reason uh, it's it's not alarming at this point is it's old hat. We're close to two and a half, three months into this. And I think banks reoriented their operations in the month or two after March. Uh, and uh, and I think they've gotten comfortable with being in a much more disciplined uh, mode where the bar is higher for loans that they make.
0: Got it. Okay. That, that makes sense. So moving, moving back to the, the Federal Reserve, uh, your dissent in September of 2020, as I mentioned, was rare. What are sort of the Ah, uh, politics that go into that meeting because you know t- typically you, you see this in organizations where oh everyone votes ten to ten to zero. And before there were a lot of uh, concerns, but everyone reaches a conclusion and then they've cast the vote and it oh, it's zero. So it seems unanimous, even though at the at the very beginning it it wasn't. Uh, I mean, do you, do you can you tell us just a little bit about what that process looks like, perhaps when when you were there in the past, and you know, can, might we speculate what's what it's looking like right now?
1: Yeah. So I, I, I'll, I'll give you what I saw and where I come from. I come from the business world where you debate and you disagree and you have furious debates. But once we make a decision together as a leadership team, I own it, mm-hmm. even if I didn't agree with it. Yep, yep. Okay. And so I'm not a big fan of dissenting. Uh, my job as a leader is to convince my peers uh, what we ought to do. And if I lose the debate then I've had my say and I go along with it. And so um, uh, I think you see a little bit of, of that at the Fed where um, I think people are not looking to dissent. The culture of the Fed and the leadership is collegial, constructive. And th- the other thing you got to remember, most of the people around the table have been at the Fed for their careers. I, I was not. It came from the outside. And so to become a Fed president or a leader at the Fed, I used to kid around troublemaker is not a great career path at the Fed. Uh, You know, you you learn to be constructive, to give your views, but to, uh, uh, you know, to limit how much uh, trouble you cause. I come from the business world where troublemaking is a little bit more encouraged and rewarded. And I encourage my subordinates even at the Dallas Fed, to disagree with me, aggressively debate, not be afraid to speak up. And so uh, when you're the only one in the room dissenting, the other thing that goes to your mind is maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. okay, And and you should. And I think that's a good thing is if I'm the only one that thinks this, either I'm smarter than everyone, which is unlikely, or maybe I'm just wrong. And so when in doubt, I tended to go along. Uh, the September 2020 was one of those rare cases where I disagreed, I was fairly isolated, and I was convinced I was right. But but that did not happen very. And also, I didn't want to dissent, and I look for every possible way to change the language in the guidance. There were a number of compromises I threw out to change that guidance that would have allowed me to sort of bite my upper lip and go along. But uh, I couldn't agree in good, co- I couldn't agree to that language. And my feeling was, if I'm going to work in the public sector, or at the Fed, uh, I've got to speak up and, and disagree. But did I feel alone? Absolutely. Was I isolated? Very much. Were, were people nice about it, including the chair? Yes, he was. He was constructive, but he was not thrilled with what I did. Would be, although he can speak for himself, but that, that was my impression was he was not terribly happy. Your perception was j was not particularly happy. The culture of the Fed is uh, is is a little bit more to fit in. Uh, this is why you saw the postmortem on the supervisory issue that happened. Uh, you know, I think you really have to work harder as a leader at the Fed to encourage people to debate, to disagree and to speak up and to cause trouble. And I did that in all my years at the Fed. I encourage people, you know, to speak up, but that is not the natural culture of the Fed. And so I think there maybe is an opportunity at the Fed to relook at the culture, but culture starts with leadership. So if the leadership says things like, I don't want to talk about this, or I don't even want to talk about talking about X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. uh, that will shut down debate and disagreement. And I think at the Fed, that's something as a leader you never wanna do. You got very smart people who are trying to do the right thing, but they're very sensitive to the chain of command and to the desires of the leader. I think the leader's gotta bend over backwards to encourage debate and disagreement. And, and a little tap from the chair or from a, me as a bank president with my team will shut everybody down. And you got to be very aware of that. In business, you have a lot of power. At the Fed, the chain of command, I think, and the power asymmetry between the boss and the subordinate is, you know, I used to kid around, multiply that by 100 versus the private sector.
0: Really, And the boss in this case is the Fed chair relative to the other FOMC members? Uh,
1: It can be, uh, even though I think he would always say, I want you to give your view. But I think if the, if the chair, uh, say to the FOMC or a bank president like me said to my team, I really don't want you to, to debate this, or I'd prefer you went along. That's a pretty powerful statement to make. And so you just have to, there's no right or wrong here. You just culturally have to be aware of it because the nature of the organization is to uh, get along agree, not disagree. And when you know that's the predisposition, I think you gotta work harder as a leader to encourage debate and disagreement because it's easy to shut it down at the Fed.
0: Mm. And so last year when the Federal Reserve really reversed course from very accommodative stance to now a quite restrictive stance, it had to raise rates, first 25, then 50, then 75 basis points, I think four 75 basis points in a row. Uh, Jay Powell really led that effort for Fed chair. How did he deal with you? You you weren't there um, in 2022, but do you have any idea of how he dealt with any potential pushback he might have have gotten from doves?
1: Uh, I'm sure he listened to it and he encouraged them to voice it and then they debated it. Uh, So for me, um, when you know you're pointed in in a direction, north, south, east or west, then most of the disagreements are about matter of degree tactics. So is it 50? Should it be 75? Should it be 25? I don't view those as, as massive disagreements. What I think are bigger issues and we're, we're, we're approaching one right now is uh, when you're, when, when it's peacetime or you feel like you've gotten your head above water and you're not sure whether to go North, south, east, or West. And you say north or the chair says north and someone else like me says, no, east, west or south. That's a big disagreement. That's a that's a strategic disagreement. So I've always been a believer if I had a minor tactical disagreement. In other words, I agree on the tightening, but I I might rather have done 25 more or less. I don't know if I'd dissent over that because we can fix that disagreement Mm -hmm. over time or in the next meeting. If there's a strategic direction disagreement, should we keep mine bonds in the size we are? Should we be making a forward commitment to keeping rates at zero? That's a strategic disagreement. And that's the reason I dissented. And uh, so the good, the, the good or bad thing, once it's clear that the Fed had to start raising rates, I think most of the disagreements, in my view, are tactical. I think whether you pause in in June or raise in June that's a tactical disagreement. We're we're, we're unlikely to have one or more than one or two more rate increases in any that event. That's that's not the end of the world. The 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 problem I have is if you're you're heading north and you should be heading south, that's a big disagreement and that's one worth having a big big fight over, big debate over. Cuz those the I I I would argue not stepping in Uh, to Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic Bank and having this hold the maturity account accepted as worth book. That's a strategic debate, not tactical. Mm -hmm. That's worth having a big fight over. Uh, But those big, big pivotal decisions, strategic, don't happen all the time. And that's why I think it's okay to go along. If I have a tactical disagreement, and I would guess most people, around if you have a tactical disagreement on the margin, I'm, I, I'm going to save my powder for the strategic disagreement.
0: Got it. So if we the Federal Reserve went very north last year, raising to 5, 525, and it probably is going to hike, excuse me, probably may, may pause on Wednesday in, in two days, but keep its powder dry for a potential another hike in July, then the market is pricing in that the Federal Reserve will, you know, somewhat rapidly and drastically move south and start cutting, uh, you know, at the end of the 2023 and continue to cut, you know, on a historical basis, you know, drastically a few few hundred basis points. Uh, the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell insists that is uh, not the case. Would you Would you agree that interest rates are you know wherever the terminal rate is, whether it's five twenty five or five fifty, that the Federal Reserve will stay there for a while unless X Y Z happens? How bad does it have to get? What ha- What does the Federal Reserve have to see before they say actually cutting is now on the table?
1: I think people should listen to Jay Powell when he says that it's unlikely that they're going to rapidly cut. I, I, If I were there, I would be advocating and saying in every speech, the market should expect we're going to keep rates at this level for a lot longer than the curve suggests. The curve suggests that by the end of the year, early next year, there's going to be a cut. I don't see that. And here's why I don't see it. I think that uh, inflation, particularly in the service sector, is going to be stickier. I think it's going to be hard to get inflation much below 4% or 3.5%. And I think the Fed, and again, this fiscal tail is uh, is going to be around for a while. I think it's going to be necessary to keep rates higher for longer than what's reflected in the forward curve. And uh, I'd be saying that, even as a private citizen, I'm saying that every time I speak. And I, at the Fed, I would be saying it every time I speak.
0: Oh. I'm, I'm glad you're saying it now. So the Federal Reserve pays attention to so much economic data, and you know, Dallas is a leading uh, hub of uh, the, the data for the F- Federal Reserve. But in terms of the market indicators, there's the credit markets and then the equity markets. Equity markets, stock market, it captures a lot of public attention, so much so people would say, oh, the S&P 500 is surging and rallying to 4,300. I bet the Federal Reserve doesn't like that because they want to tighten, uh, um, you know, tighten monetary policy. How much does the Federal Reserve pay attention to the equity market, or do they pay a lot more attention to the credit market, you know, high yield uh, leverage loans, given that that is the real sort of engine of, of uh,
1: economic growth? So everybody around the table handles it differently. I'll, I'll speak for myself. I focus much more on credit spreads and the credit markets. Uh, and the reason on the S&P, the thing that you got to be careful about, uh, and this the year is a good example. You know, you've got five or 10 stocks that are making up for the bulk of the increase. You have a number of uh, industries where uh, earnings are challenged and the stocks are challenged or the stocks reflect a concern about a downturn in the economy. And so I I, I think as a central banker, I'm much more interested in what's going on with bank lending and with credit spreads and availability of credit.
0: Got it. So uh, the, the, if, if everyone at the Federal Reserve sh- thought like you, the argument that, oh, the higher the S&P 500 goes, the more the Fed has to hike would not
1: be true. I, I don't, I, I mean, listen, everybody around the table should speak for himself, but the level of the S&P would not be a driver of my decision on whether we need to do more rate hikes. What would be a, what would be a driver is uh, what I think the prospects are for the economy, uh, credit spreads, And particular, I'd have my eye and I do have my eye very much focused on this 50 million plus group of workers that make $50,000 a year or less and are struggling to make ends meet and are driving more wage increases in the service sector and uh, more pricing in the service sector. I'd be very aware of that. And the other thing I'd be doing if I were at the Fed and I'm doing it as a private citizen, I'd be pointing out that monetary policy is part of the fight on inflation, but it's not the only part. Fiscal policy and energy policy matter significantly at this stage. And uh, I think it's important that other parts of the government focus on their role in this inflation issue. Listen, I'm I'm a big proponent of, uh, sustainability and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But this, the transition plan, I'm afraid is, is not reflected the fact this could take 15 or 20 years, not three or four years. And what we've done is limit the cleanest production of fossil fuels in the world in favor of dirtier production, in other parts of the Mm -hmm. world. And we've allowed the price of oil and gas to spike. The price at the pump to be higher, and again, back to that $50,000 year worker, uh, that worker is particularly affected by food, energy, rents, and God forbid, health care. And by having oil prices higher, that means that person has a harder time making ends meet, needs to get paid more money. And so my point is, as a central banker, I think you could do a great service by making clear monetary policy is not the be all end all and fight inflation. We need a whole of government approach which includes a focus on fiscal policy, the remnants of these government programs, energy policy is very uh significant and I think the Fed I I personally think we'd be better served if we had a more holistic view of how to fight inflation. I think if you leave the Fed to do it all by itself with no change to these other policies, rates are going to be higher. For longer, and there's a greater chance that we might make a mistake in monetary policy, uh, which uh, you know we prefer not to do.
0: And you think to the extent that. You know, American oil companies haven't been investing uh, in production, and so much so that you know, uh, you know uh, Chinese coal companies are, are picking up the slack, so to speak. I think that's what you're referring to, or Australian coal companies. That is a reflection more in of Saudi India. Arabia. Yes, yes. U.S. fiscal policy. U, excuse me. U.S. Uh, regulation you know, passed by Congress and then the president, rather than sort of uh, set private the private markets ESG uh, a movement saying, oh, we're not going to invest in in stuff, which you know is not really government directed.
1: So what do I mean by you had earlier in 2021, I think there was more uh, signals from the government that encouraged fossil fuel companies to limit their oil and gas production. And and I think that's fine, as long as we have alternatives to replace it, but we didn't, and we still don't. And so what the shareholders also did under pressure uh, is they basically said to those companies, the extent you have cash flow we don't want you to put it into drilling. We want you to put it in alternatives or return it in dividends and share repurchase. And that's what those companies have done. And so the impact of it is the price of uh, oil globally is in the 70s, not in the 40s. Uh, it also means that around the world, people are burning more coal. Uh, we, we are actually encouraging OPEC to produce more. And. Uh, which is dirtier than our production. Um, and so I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm saying it is a factor in causing people who make $50,000 a year not being able to make ends meet. We're doing this in a way that is putting more pressure on low, moderate income families in poorer countries. And so that, to that extent, means inflation is gonna be stickier. That's one of the pieces of the puzzle that explain why inflation is stickier and why people making 50 grand a year need to make a little bit more because they've got a drive to get to work. And we should just be aware of it. The Fed can't solve that problem. And I think the Fed is well served to point out it cannot solve all these issues. It it can do its part on monetary policy. But I think the extent that the Fed is the only game in town on this, you're going to see rates higher for longer.
0: Hire for longer. Uh, that makes sense. Thank you. Uh, my, my final question is: So you are the co-chair of the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, where you do venture philanthropy. I want to know, firstly, what motivated you to to do this, and what your projects are you excited about. And secondly, just in the venture world broadly, what are you seeing? Are you seeing some activity slow down because of you know Silicon Valley Bank, a huge bank to uh, all these venture companies, that bank was taken down. And if you see in 2020, 2021, you know. You had juice companies being valued at a billion dollars. I mean, is the sort of, uh, the high valuation period kind of over.
1: So Draper Richards Kaplan is a 501 C three. We have approximately a $90 million fund with about 85 or so, uh, donors. And we've been running this for a whole number of years. We, we back 20 to 25 early stage social enterprises every year. They pr- are predominantly not for profits to the extent they're for profits. If we make a profit, we dump the profits back into the 501c3. So no one ever makes any money from this. And what we find is uh, even though, yes, the venture, the for profit venture world has seen valuations come down and is, uh, is somewhat under a little bit more pressure uh, in the nonprofit world, which I live in. Uh, I actually think our role is, if anything, is greater. Uh, the interest in backing what we do is even greater. Uh, and the need for interventions that help at-risk communities in the United States and around the world is just as great or greater than it's ever been. And so um, uh, what's going on in the for-profit venture world doesn't really affect us very much. And if anything, it probably increases the need For what we do at Draper Richards Kaplan. Now, why did I do it? I'm a big believer in disruptive social enterprises to help serve at-risk populations, whether it's in education, uh, 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 food inadequacy, uh, access to healthcare, a whole range of other needs. Uh, I think the government has a role to play, business has a role to play, but social entrepreneurs have a bit, very big role to play in finding new ways to improve what we do and help at-risk communities here and around the world. And I, I'm a big believer in it. And the more I do it, the more I believe it, and even more. And they're amazed by social entrepreneurs and the things that our enterprises do. Uh, and we put one of our managing directors on every one of these boards for three years. We back them for three years. Uh, we've now incubated over 200 ventures over the last 12 or 13 years, and so um, I think the need for this has never been greater. And we're we're continuing to aggressively try to step in and uh, and back social entrepreneurs.
0: Mm. That, that's wonderful. Well, so many takeaways from this interview. Thank you for you know sharing your time and, and insights. Uh, but if you if you had to summarize it into a few words, I, I perhaps I would say hire for longer. Is that fair?
1: Hire for longer and monetary policy. It's, it's great to be focused on it. And obviously I was at the Fed, so I think it's very important. But I think just as important is what we do in early childhood literacy, education, the digital divide, skills training, uh, things that improve productivity, help at-risk populations and fiscal policy and energy policy other as, uh, aspects also play a critical role and i think we'd be well served economically to broaden the aperture because i think we'll have a stronger economy and a, and a better country if we talk more broadly about economic policy uh, than we currently do there
0: we go well thank you robert for joining and thank you everyone for watching thanks jack Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.